From Settlement to Superpower, Introduction, Episode 7. God blew and they scattered. So hello everybody and welcome back. I'm Abraham Ash and this is From Settlement to Superpower. Well, what do you know? We made it. Here we are at the final introductory podcast. We've so far covered a huge amount of material in as concise a way as I thought possible, and we're now on the threshold of big changes in both the style and scope of this podcast. We're going to go over all of those programming details next week, but for now, let's wrap up the reign of Queen Elizabeth, introduce that of King James, and then westward ho, on to America. So, as you'll recall, we left off last week's episode with the execution of Mary, Queen of the Scots, on the 8th of February, 1587. As we mentioned last week, her death was a watershed moment in Queen Elizabeth's reign. The doomed Mary, in her secret will, named the heir to her claims to the Scottish and English thrones. To everyone's surprise, however... That heir which she named was not her son, King James VI of Scotland. You see, the Scottish nobles who overthrew Mary had James raised as a good Presbyterian, and although James was turned away from Presbyterianism by the severity of his upbringing, he was still firmly within the Protestant camp. James, Mary maintained, had forfeited his right to rule unless he returned to the fold of the Catholic Church an extremely unlikely possibility. So instead of her son, Mary named King Philip II of Spain as her heir, and in so doing, she struck a more dangerous blow at Elizabeth with her death than she had throughout her 18 years of fruitless scheming. You see, up until now, Catholic Spain really had no desire to completely crush England. Their war with England was more or less limited to feuding with English expeditionary forces in the Netherlands. Sure, the Pope had declared Elizabeth illegitimate and had commanded the faithful to remove her from the English throne by all means, but in reality, Spain had very little to gain and very much to potentially lose from a serious war with England. But now, however? Well, the picture had changed a lot. In the past, the most Spain could have hoped for from an invasion of England would be the installation of a Catholic monarch on the English throne. That was of course fine and dandy for Spain, but it in no way justified the colossal expense and risk which would necessarily go into a full-scale invasion of England. It wasn't even a given that the monarch he'd install would be friendly to Spanish interests. After all, Mary, Queen of the Scots herself, was dynastically connected to the French, and the French were the major rivals of Spain. So, up until he inherited Mary's claim, King Philip of Spain never seriously entertained the thought of sending an army across the Channel. But now, however, Spain suddenly had a huge amount to potentially gain. They were now within reach of taking the crown of England, and perhaps later, even that of Scotland. This was massive. Suddenly, the expenditures and risks an invasion entailed seemed almost petty when compared to the prize, and Philip had every intention of going for the gold. 
Elizabeth herself still thought she could negotiate with Spain and secure a peace, but the truth was that that ship had long since sailed and total war with Spain was now inevitable. Philip's prospects seemed bright. His armies and generals were the finest in all Europe, and he had access to what he seemed to think was limitless gold from his vast territories in the New World. The English, by comparison, hadn't carried out a successful continental military campaign ever since the days of Henry VIII. Their army was practically non-existent, their leadership was at best mediocre, and it was quite clear to everybody that if the Spanish would be able to cross the channel in force, the English were doomed. And Philip was pretty confident that he was able to ferry his armies across the channel safely. After all, he had virtually limitless funds to mobilize a massive fleet of warships to safely escort his troops from the continent to England. Of course, we all know now that this plan didn't quite work out as planned, but in 1587, it seemed as though a Spanish romp through the English countryside was all but unavoidable. Philip began assembling his invasion fleet in Cadiz, with intent to sail against England later that year. By July 1587, his mighty fleet was ready to set sail. Philip's plans, however, were frustrated by that daring and legendary Englishman, that man whom the Spanish referred to as El Drake, or the Dragon, Sir Francis Drake. Drake was born somewhere in the neighborhood of 1540 to a Devonshire farmer. During the 1549 Catholic uprising in Devon and Cornwall, his family, fervent Protestants all, were forced to flee to the relative safety of Kent, where the young Francis was apprenticed to a merchant. This merchant owned a small coastal bark, which he would use to transfer goods across the channel to France. It was here that Drake got his first taste of sea life, a vocation which he would not abandon for the rest of his dashing life. In 1563, his naval career began in earnest, when he made his first voyage to the Americas under a rather disreputable second cousin of his, John Hawkins. Hawkins was a slave trader and a pirate, or privateer if you will, it all depends on your perspective. What he would do was he would sail down to the coast of Africa, where he would kidnap slaves and hijack Portuguese slavers. Upon filling up his hold with his human goods, Hawkins would then make his way across the ocean to the cities on the Spanish main, where he would illegally trade his cargo after bribing or threatening the local governors to look the other way and allow him to do so. Hawkins and Drake made a pretty profit in this manner for several years, making two successful voyages to the Spanish main, until a fateful incident occurred on their third voyage in 1568, which put a permanent end to Hawkins and Drake's slave trading racket, and which would profoundly affect the trajectory of the young Drake's life. This event was the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, which wasn't so much a battle as it was a massacre. As Hawkins and his five ships were at anchor in the harbor at San Juan, which is the modern Mexican city of Veracruz, a Spanish fleet sailed into the harbor. 
The Spanish fleet eventually agreed to a truce with the Englishmen, and the English believed that the Spanish would hold to their side of the bargain. But what the English didn't know was that the commander of the Spanish fleet was under orders to stop the illegal English trading with the Spanish colonies, and as such had no intention of keeping his deal with these pirates. On the morning of December 24, 1568, the Spanish launched a surprise attack on the English fleet. Fortunately for the English, they weren't caught completely by surprise. Had the Spanish succeeded in catching them by surprise, it is doubtful whether they would have had even a single survivor. As it were, the attack was a complete catastrophe for the English. Three out of five of the ships were either sunk or captured, and something like 500 men were killed. Drake himself acted with uncharacteristic cowardice during this engagement, fleeing with his ship, the Judith, and abandoning Hawkins to fend for himself in his ship. Only around 70 men, Drake and Hawkins included, would ever return to England. Upon returning to England in defeat and disgrace, Drake vowed that he would have his revenge on the perfidious Spanish, and it is at this moment that Drake truly becomes a professional pirate. Over the next 20 years, Drake plied the seas, terrorizing Spanish shipping, sacking their cities in the Americas, and becoming the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. Drake was by now something of a national hero in England, and it was to this fearsome raider that Elizabeth turned to to stop the Spanish in 1587. Drake took command of a relatively small flotilla of ships, all in all less than 30 ships, primarily armed merchant vessels, and headed out to plunder the coast of Spain. Elizabeth did, we should note, send out a last-minute message countermanding her earlier orders to Drake, and ordering him not to attack Spanish soil, but the letter arrived at Plymouth a week too late. Drake had already sailed. Now, we don't really know whether Elizabeth actually had a change of heart, or whether she deliberately had the letter arrive late just to give her some cover in the event that Drake failed, but looking at Elizabeth's style of rule, it seems quite reasonable to assume the latter option. That said, Elizabeth really did not want war with Spain, and perhaps she was hoping that she could still offer favorable terms to Spain, and so mollify them into calling off their invasion, so we don't really know. But anyways, regardless of what Elizabeth intended, Drake was on his way to Spain, for better or for worse. As it turned out though, Drake's expedition was a smashing success. He sailed straight for Cadiz, where some 60 Spanish carracks were at anchor. He boldly sailed into the harbor under the French flag, burned 37 ships, destroyed the harbor, and sailed out triumphantly, although not before he had replenished his stores from the Spanish supplies, and destroyed the rest of them. Drake went on to make a few more raids on the Spanish-Portuguese coast, and capture a ship full of spices and trade goods, before returning home to a hero's welcome in England. The Spanish invasion was postponed, and Drake boastfully declared that he had singed the King of Spain's beard. 
But of course, as everybody knew, Drake had only succeeded in delaying the Spanish invasion plans, not canceling them. By May of 1588, the Armada was once again ready to set sail. It was a most impressive force. 28 warships accompanied over 100 armed merchant vessels. Aboard the ships were 8,000 sailors, 18,000 moderately trained troops, and 2,500 artillery pieces. The plan was for this massive fleet to sail up to Dunkirk, where they would rendezvous with 30,000 highly trained troops from the Netherlands, under the command of the infamous Duke of Parma. Together, the two forces were to land somewhere about Kent, from where they would advance with all haste on to London. Overall command of the entire operation was thrust on the unwilling shoulders of the Duke of Medina Sidonia. Medina Sidonia was a man of impeccable loyalty and conscientiousness, and his high social rank secured his respect among his subordinates. However, Medina Sidonia did not want the job. He sent a letter to King Philip declaring his unsuitability for the task, citing his lack of battle experience and an unfortunate tendency towards seasickness. It was all to no avail, however, and on the 28th of May, 1588, Medina Sidonia found himself in command of the Grand Armada, sailing out of the port of Lisbon and headed for the English Channel. Opposing them was the English fleet, anchored at Plymouth. If one were simply to look at the numbers, one could be excused for thinking that the odds were in fact in favor of England. England's fleet outnumbered the Spanish at an approximate ratio of 3 to 2. But the Spanish were better supplied, and the firepower of their entire fleet outgunned that of the English fleet at that same ratio, 3 to 2. This meant that if the Spanish would manage to close for action, the English would be butchered. In command of this English fleet was Sir Francis Drake, and as one of his rear admirals, he had his cousin, the now respectable John Hawkins. These two survivors of the massacre at San Juan de Ulua were thirsty for revenge against the Spanish, and this summer would indeed be a season of vengeance. Things went wrong for Medina Sidonia and the Spanish from the very start. Bedeviled by bad weather and harassed by the nimble English ships who tailed and sniped them, the Spanish drew up their ships in Calais, where they expected to rendezvous with Parma and his men. But Parma and his men were nowhere near. Their force was still stuck in the Netherlands, and they had no means of transport, while Dunkirk, where they were supposed to land, was blockaded by a small Dutch fleet. Medina Sidonia, by nature a cautious man, was unwilling to split up his force to drive off the Dutch. All Medina Sidonia was willing to do was sit and wait. At approximately midnight, July 28th, the English sent eight fireships downwind towards the Spanish fleet, who were drawn up in a tight crescent formation. Fire was the most terrifying thing possible to someone aboard a wooden ship and fire ships were a weapon which capitalized upon that fear. Basically, they would take an old ship, 
loaded up with pitch, brimstone, and sometimes even explosives, set the ship aflame, and then send the blazing ship floating into the enemy fleet. At that point, the enemy would have a choice. Either stay where they were and go up in flames, or else scatter. The Spanish scattered, and by the time they were able to regroup, the winds were unfavorable, and they were unable to move back to their original position. The English attacked them near Gravelines, Flanders. The English stuck to their old strategy of maneuvering and avoiding direct engagement with the larger Spanish ships, all the while peppering the enemy with cannon fire. The result was an English victory, with five Spanish ships sunk to none of the English. Now this was hardly a smashing victory in the field, but it was enough to force Medina Sidonia away from the French coast, and away from any chance of linking up with Parma. The winds were by now very much against him, and the English pursued his retreating fleet all the way up the east coast of England. It became clear that his only way back to Spain was by the circuitous and hazardous northern route, around Scotland and Ireland. The defeated armada's return to Spain was a naval anabasis. Starved, thirsty, and battered, many ships were wrecked in storms off the western coasts of Scotland and Ireland. Thousands upon thousands were drowned, starved, or butchered by English troops in Ireland. When the pitiful remnants straggled back home, it was found that only 67 ships remained, with approximately 20,000 casualties. It took a while for the magnitude of their victory to sink in for the English, who, after all, had sunk or captured only six ships, but when it did, a religious euphoria swept through England. This was a religious propaganda coup of the highest order. God blew and they scattered, exulted the commemorative medal, and Protestants across the nation, and indeed across all Europe, heard in their triumph an echo of the book of Exodus's triumphant song of Moses. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods? The English were convinced that their warrior queen, Elizabeth, had been proven to be God's anointed to strike the idolatrous papist down, and as had occurred for the prophetess Deborah, the elements themselves assisted in the victory of the faithful over the heathen. They fought from the heavens, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. For his part, Philip of Spain piously, and probably quite sincerely declared, It is impiety and almost blasphemy to presume to know the will of God. It comes from the sin of pride. Even kings must submit to being used by God's will without knowing what it is. They must never seek to use it. The destruction of the Spanish Armada became, despite its relative lack of long-term strategic implications, a major event in English historiography.
the concrete threat of foreign invasion which preceded it, the sense of an ultimate showdown between the Anglican and Catholic faiths, and the victory's almost biblical proportions stirred the consciousness of the English people, and fused their feelings of patriotism and piety into a potent cocktail. A cocktail which would, in time, make itself felt across the world. Elizabeth wished to follow up on this victory and force Spain to come to the negotiating table, and with that in mind, she sent out a massive fleet under Drake the following year. The fleet had four primary objectives. The first, and by far the most important objective, was to burn what was left of the Spanish Atlantic fleet. This would prevent them from rebuilding their fleet around the nucleus of the old one, an objective which is of paramount importance for the English. The English were, after all, still under the threat of Spanish invasion, even if that threat had lost some of its immediacy in 1588, and getting rid of those remaining Spanish ships was necessary if Spain was to be compelled to negotiate a peace. The second objective was to support a rebellion against King Philip in Portugal. Elizabeth hoped that the Portuguese would support a pretender from their old ruling house of Avis, and thus wrest away Portugal and her colossal trade empire from King Philip of Spain. The third objective was to sail out and seize the Azores from Philip, which the English would then be able to use as a forward base for operations in America and trade in Africa. The fourth, and to be honest the most attractive objective of the English Armada, was to seize the Spanish treasure fleet as it was arriving in Spain. The New World, with its mines of gold and silver, was the primary source of Spain's income, and if the English could intercept that cash flow, they would enrich themselves and starve the Spanish in one fell swoop. Ultimately, the English Armada would get bogged down destroying a limited number of Spain's ships, the Portuguese rebellion would simply fail to materialize, and the depleted English fleet was forced to withdraw to England with virtually nothing achieved at the cost of England's entire treasury reserve. The defeat of the English Armada allowed Philip to rebuild his navy and shattered all hopes of bringing the war to a speedy conclusion. For the next 14 years, England and Spain would be locked into an exhausting and costly war, comprised mainly of piracy and raids carried out on one another. Spain would launch several more armadas, but they were generally scattered by storms or directed to ends other than the invasion of England. The one theater in which the Anglo-Spanish War would only intensify was in Ireland. Ireland is a massive and necessary story which I've been avoiding getting into for some time now. However, Ireland's story is a necessary story we must tell for that of the Jamestown colony, as the English subjugation and colonization of Ireland was a direct inspiration and training ground for those who would later transport that bloody craft across the Atlantic. Many of the individuals we will soon be mentioning over in Virginia, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, Sir Walter Raleigh, Edward Maria Wingfield, and many others besides, were veterans of England's bloody suppression of Ireland. 
But let's first just quickly pan out and briefly review the history of the English in Ireland. Up until the so-called Norman invasion of 1169, Ireland was almost entirely Gaelic, although over the previous centuries a significant Norse influence was introduced through warfare and trade. Ireland was at that point merely a geographical term, and it had none of the centralized control one found in England or other medieval kingdoms. Rather, Ireland was comprised of numerous feuding clans who nominally acknowledged a high king, who was more like a first among equals than an actual king. From 1169 through 1177, King Henry II of England expanded his control throughout Ireland, by way of vassalizing Irish nobles and allowing his own vassals to seize Irish lands for themselves. Eventually, Henry II compelled the Irish and Norman lords to acknowledge him as Lord of Ireland. English influence in Ireland would grow throughout the 13th and the beginning of the 14th century, but would then begin to recede as the Black Death killed off many of the Norman lords, and those who survived intermarried so much with the native Gaelic lords that they were soon culturally indistinguishable from the native Irish nobility. And finally, in the chaos caused throughout England by the Wars of the Roses, English authority in Ireland had all but disappeared by the dawn of the 16th century. All that England still controlled was the Pale, which was a small strip of land surrounding Dublin, and even that was subject to frequent raids by the surrounding Irish nobility. Henry VII sought to rebuild English authority in Ireland by means of delegating that authority to the most powerful of the Norman Irish dynasties, that of the Fitzgeralds. Basically, what Henry's rationale was, was that if the Norman Irish were managing their own affairs anyhow, he may as well make that official royal policy, so that instead of undermining his authority, the Fitzgeralds would actually be maintaining it. That policy worked, well, somewhat okay, until the Fitzgeralds rebelled against Henry VIII in 1534. Henry beheaded pretty much all of the prominent Fitzgeralds and set out on a different course of Irish pacification. Henry VIII shared the same basic idea as his father, which was that if the Irish lords hold all the power anyways, we might as well make that official royal policy. But instead of appointing just one dynasty to control English affairs in Ireland, although the Fitzgeralds were left with significant prerogatives, Henry set out on a policy of surrender and regrant, which basically meant that the Irish nobles would surrender their clan titles to the king, and would then be regranted the same lands and privileges by way of a royal charter. Furthermore, the king had himself promoted from merely Lord of Ireland to King of Ireland. Under this new structure, the king was the sovereign lord of Ireland, and all of the native lords were his vassals. It was all a nice bit of legal ledger domain, but in reality, the Irish lords simply accepted Henry as king, and then went on conducting themselves, raids and all, exactly as they had before. Nonetheless, the presumption of the Tudors and their encroachments into Irish affairs would inflame the Irish nobility, until finally, 
the power struggle between the Irish nobles and the crown would merge with the bloody wars of religion, and Catholic Ireland would explode in rebellion against Protestant England. It would not be until 1607 that the final rebellious Irish nobles would be pacified or dispossessed. This brings us to the year of 1569, which, as you'll recall, was the year in which the northern earls rose up in rebellion against Queen Elizabeth and the Pope excommunicated her. That year, a rebellion flared up in Desmond, in southern Ireland, or Munster. For centuries, two rival clans had struggled with one another for dominance over Munster, the butlers of Ormond and the Fitzgeralds of Desmond. In recent years, the rivalry had taken on a religious character as well. The butlers were fervent Protestants, while the Fitzgeralds remained faithful Catholics. Their rivalry would come to a head in 1565, when they and their supporters fought a pitched battle at the town of Affane, Waterford, in which Desmond was defeated and his forces routed. Elizabeth was furious when she found out that her subjects were waging open war on one another, and she summoned both Ormond and Desmond to London to explain themselves. Elizabeth decided in favor of the Protestant Ormond, who, completely unrelatedly, was also Elizabeth's cousin and friend, and pardoned him, while she imprisoned the Catholic Desmond and his brother in the Tower of London. The leadership of the Earldom of Desmond effectively fell into the hands of James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, a cousin of the imprisoned Earl. In 1569, Fitzmaurice led the South into rebellion against Elizabeth allying with friendly dynasties around him. This rebellion was largely fueled by indignation at small-scale land confiscations carried out by the English government. Religion wasn't yet a major component of the Desmond rebellions. That would only come into play several years later. For now, this was more about the ongoing power struggle between the crown and the Irish nobles. Fitzmaurice rejected the English ways and framed himself as the defender of traditional Gaelic values. He only wore native Irish garb and referred to himself as the Tishach rather than the Earl of Desmond, whose Irish pronunciation I'm not even going to try to get right here. The English responded swiftly and brutally. Henry Sidney, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, led an Anglo-Irish assault on Desmond's lands, destroying and killing everything in his path. Most notorious of all was the behavior of one of Sidney's chief commanders, Sir Humphrey Gilbert. Gilbert was the half-brother of Walter Raleigh, and we will, in the coming episodes, have quite a bit to say about both of them. Anyways, Gilbert had a policy. Absolutely no quarter was to be given. Men, women, children, the sick, the pregnant, infants, and the elderly all were butchered upon sight. And as a final horrid twist, Gilbert ordered that every one of his victims, regardless of sex or age, was to be beheaded, and their severed heads were to be placed in two rows leading up to his tent, so that anyone who wished to speak to Gilbert would first need to pass between a long pathway of bloody severed heads. 
In the face of tactics like this, the Irish were forced into submission. By 1571, the rebellion was largely broken, and although mop-up operations continued into 1573, Fitzmaurice no longer posed a serious threat to the crown. By 1573, Fitzmaurice's situation was desperate, and he surrendered himself up to the English in exchange for a guarantee that he would not be executed. After he was stripped of all his property, he went into exile onto the continent, vowing to return again at the head of an army. In the meanwhile, the English punitive measures enraged the local populace. The old Irish laws were repressed, Gaelic dress and poetry was banned, and the English troops executed over 700 Galoglach, or Irish mercenaries, who are class unto their own and who the English perceived to be a threat. The Earl of Desmond and his brother were released from the Tower of London, but they were prohibited from raising an army of more than 20 horsemen. None of these measures endeared the English to the locals, and when Fitzmaurice would return, the people would flock to his banner. In 1579, that return occurred. Fitzmaurice returned at the head of a small force of Catholic volunteers, armed with a proclamation from the Pope, who declared Elizabeth once again to be a heretic, and who declared it the duty of every Catholic to overthrow her. Fitzmaurice was quickly joined by John Fitzgerald, the brother who was imprisoned with the Earl of Desmond, and many other disaffected elements in Munster. The Earl of Desmond himself tried to stay out of this, but eventually the English would declare him a traitor, and so he was forced against his will to join the rebellion as well. This rebellion would be centered around the issue of religion, but in reality, it would not be only about religion, but also about the Irish rising up against their cultural, political, and economic repression by the English. This second rebellion was also put down, albeit far more bloodily than the first, and with much greater difficulty. The Irish rebels scored a victory over the English army at the Battle of Glenmalore, and managed to stay in the field until 1583, despite the vast superiority of the English army. They had even, in 1580, received the assistance of a small papal contingent, whom the English soldiers massacred almost to a man upon their surrender. As a side note, by the way, present at that massacre of papal troops was Sir Walter Raleigh, brother of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, and later the prime driver of English colonization in the Americas. In any event, by 1584, Fitzmaurice, Desmond, and his brother were all dead, and there were literally not enough people left alive in Munster to sustain the fight against the English. Munster was completely ravaged and depopulated by rebel killings, English genocide, and the subsequent famine and plague. It is not unreasonable to estimate a death toll upwards of 40,000. Munster was no more. Edmund Spencer, a contemporary English chronicler and observer, describes to us the devastation wrought upon the land and its inhabitants. Notwithstanding that the same was a most rich and plentiful country, full of corn and cattle, 
that you would have thought that they would have been able to stand long, yet ere one year and a half they were brought to such wretchedness as that any stormy heart would have rued the same. Out of every corner of the woods and glens they came creeping forth upon their hands, for their legs could not bear them. They looked like anatomies of death. They spake like ghosts crying out of their graves. They did eat of the dead carrions. Happy were they if they could find them, yea, and one another soon after. Insomuch as the very carcasses they spared not to scrape out of their graves, and if they found a plot of watercresses or shamrocks, there they flooded as to the feast for a time, yet in a short space there were almost none left, and the most populous and plentiful country suddenly made void of man and beast. The result of the depopulation of the Desmond rebellions was the Munster Plantation, which was an initiative the English crown undertook to repopulate the devastated area with English Protestants, who would be loyal to the crown and would help civilize those barbaric Irish. The crown revoked huge swaths of land owned by rebellious landowners and then handed that land out to English settlers, who would come and take possession of great estates, if they were only willing to go over there and civilize the troublesome country. The Munster Plantation was the first large-scale plantation in Ireland, and would serve as the prototype for the Stuarts' Ulster Plantation of 1609, whose shadow Ireland still lives under till this very day. More importantly for us, however, was that the English plantations in Ireland would serve as a prototype for their later colonies in the New World, and as we've mentioned before, many of those gentlemen adventurers who would later build Virginia would be veterans of the bloody conquest and colonization of Ireland. And if you think all this sounds bad for the Irish, this is only the prelude. We aren't going to get too into the military details of the Nine Years' War, but suffice it to say that in 1595, after two years of low-key insurrection, the North, or Ulster, broke out an open rebellion against the crown, under the two most powerful of the Irish chieftains, Hugh O'Neill of Ulster and Hugh Roe O'Donnell of Tirchonel. Together, the two repulsed a number of English offensives, and by 1596, King Philip of Spain was openly attempting to send O'Neill and O'Donnell reinforcements, thus merging the Irish Rebellion and the Anglo-Spanish War. It was in 1598, however, that the rebellion really grew wings, when the rebels managed to utterly destroy an English army at the Battle of Yellow Forks, killing some 2,000 English troops during the rout. At the news of their victory, virtually all of Ireland rose up against the English, destroying the Munster Plantation and killing several hundred of the colonists. Only the Pale remained loyal to the English crown. Elizabeth initially sent her armies to Ireland under the command of the Earl of Essex, who proved to be quite a poor commander. He and his troops got repeatedly bogged down in minor operations and stayed holed up in filthy garrisons where thousands of his troops rotted away and died of various diseases. In general, Essex did nothing useful in Ireland whatsoever. 
Fortunately for the English, however, and unfortunately for the Irish, Elizabeth had Essex executed in 1599 and replaced him with Lord Mountjoy, a far superior commander and administrator. The English sent out two separate forces to pacify both Ulster in the north and Munster in the south. They managed to pacify Munster by employing a strategy of divide and conquer, where they used both diplomacy and force to break up the rebel forces and then annihilate them piecemeal. By 1601, Munster was largely restored to English rule. Up in the north, however, where O'Neill and O'Donnell were, the going was much rougher. Facing the large and united guerrilla armies of the two chieftains, the English employed their tried-and-tested scorched-earth tactics, burning homes and farms and killing livestock and civilians indiscriminately. This caused an appalling famine and ratcheted up the pressure on the rebels, but the English were getting worn out as well. Disease and combat had been taking their toll, and it was by no means clear that the English armies or crown would be able to maintain this costly war. The issue was decided, however, at the Battle of Kinsale. The battle was initiated by the landing in 1601 of 3,500 Spanish troops in southern Ireland, in the small fishing town of Kinsale. Mountjoy immediately brought 7,000 troops down to besiege the Spanish, while O'Neill and O'Donnell marched south to relieve them. Mountjoy's troops were starving and diseased, and it is quite likely that with a little patience, the English army would have been so depleted that they would have been forced to withdraw, but the impetuous O'Donnell decided instead to attack the English. The English in turn surprised the Irish with a cavalry charge and destroyed their entire army. The demoralized Spanish surrendered immediately following the English victory, and Mountjoy allowed them to sail back home to Spain. From here on in it was clear that the rebellion was doomed. O'Donnell traveled to Spain to lobby for another invasion force, where he died, probably as the result of assassination by an English agent in 1602. O'Neill, meanwhile, returned north to Ulster, where the English and his Irish rivals were devastating the countryside. Refugees flocked into the cities, where famine and disease took an appalling toll. O'Neill himself went into hiding with his men, where they managed to hold off until the fateful day of March 24, 1603. On that day, Queen Elizabeth I, monarch of England for 45 turbulent years, died and was succeeded by King James VI of Scotland, now King James I of England, son of the ill-fated Mary, Queen of the Scots, and with Elizabeth died the war in Ireland. For several years now, Mountjoy and the English nobles had favored granting O'Neill pardon in exchange for him and his men laying down their arms. The war had already dragged on for eight years and had cost England two million pounds, which was an astronomical sum in those days, and there was no telling how much longer O'Neill and his men could hold out. For all the English knew, they could hold out for years and bankrupt the English treasury. Queen Elizabeth disagreed, but King James concurred, and by the end of 1603, 
a general pardon was declared, with O'Neill and the others restored to their lands and titles, provided that they acknowledged James as their sovereign, which wisely they did. Death toll estimates from famine, disease, and violence exceed 100,000 Irish and 30,000 English lives. The Nine Years' War, as it came to be known, was by far England's costliest contest during the Elizabethan age, both in terms of blood and treasure expended. The depopulation of Northern Ireland would contribute to its later colonization by the Presbyterian Scots, but that's a story for a different time. For now, all we will point out is that with the general amnesty in Ireland, England's religious wars had come to a close. Now that Elizabeth was gone, an entire era, heroic and violent, slipped away with her. War weary Spain, now under King Philip III, and England, under King James I, were able to sign a peace accord, which they would go on to do in 1604. Close to two decades of costly war had depleted the treasuries of both powers, and everybody would now breathe a sigh of relief that it was all over. In England, the blessings of peace would open the door to the greatest project of colonization hitherto known to the history of man. It would begin as a slow and uncertain trickle, but with time would grow to a steady flow, before finally maturing into a cascading torrent which would sweep away an entire old order and rush over a threshold of a new dawn for all humanity. This is the beginning of the story of America, and from here on in our podcast will shift its attention from England to the Americas. Now I'm going to be going on brief hiatus. I'm not going to post a full-length episode of historical content next week. I am going to put a little programming announcement describing how the podcast is going to work now that we're up to America. But otherwise, I'm going to wait until the following week before I put out my first episode. Episode 1 of From Settlement to Superpower. I'll see you then. (laughs) 